Turn off the dark in your apartment. Yeah. Let me go turn off the dark nice. in my apartment right now. Yeah, Spike is stoked. He's stuck in some kind of a... He's trying to make us think his camera froze or something, but he's moving yeah. just enough. I just feel like I froze. <laughs> uh, guys, welcome to Development Hell. Uh, we're a podcast where filmmakers and comedians talk about movies and their long, bumpy road to release. But today we're not talking about a movie. We're deviating uh, for the first time today because, uh, you know, development hell can affect so many different uh, types of work, uh, you know, video games, music, um, and even musicals. And today we are covering Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. Hell is and... an equal opportunity uh, <laughs> operation. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's not just films. This is 2020. Not just films. Uh and and the the thing that really is interesting to me with Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark is it is this it, you know we've we've dove into a lot of these movies that have had really deep development hell during some part of their production right mm-hmm. um whether it be the road towards actually getting the cameras rolling or once the cameras start rolling and you find out that they're you know filming with real dead bodies or you know whatever does that come up uh is that going to come up this week yeah there was another it was another filipino grave robber well they tried to you know it they they tried to make dead bodies dude filipino grave robbers that i'm changing my playstation name to in the in the the production of turn off the dark yeah this one they were like we'll just make those we'll we'll whip those out in house those dead bodies we got that um the less you can outsource the better the the hard thing about spider-man turn off the dark was every show night they killed a real man for uncle ben (laughs) (laughs) they shot an older 60s broadway actor every (laughs) every poitier Um, was this close guys this close so for those of you who don't know or maybe just don't know the details spider-man turn off the dark is the most expensive Broadway production ever attempted. And it's by far uh, at $79 million. Um, The production included over 27 aerial sequences, six major cast injuries, uh, so much behind the scenes drama. And that's really what overshadowed anything they could put on stage. I doubt you guys have heard much about the story unless you've really looked into it, but you know, that you know the first joke we made was about somebody getting hurt on the production (laughs) right i mean it's also the thing with spider-man in that uh i we're also kind of so familiar with it that the story of any spider-man story is irrelevant i feel like whenever (laughs) we talk about any iteration of spider-man whether it's the movies or the games or the, the comics it's it's talking about the small deviations or the drama we don't really talk about like the intricacies of the Mysterio plot in Far From Home. It's more like, <laughs> did you see the costume? <laughs> or Right, right, yeah. Uh, well, and that's sort of what I, I thought was kind of interesting to s- sort of start our conversation here. Before we turn off the dark, uh, <laughs> let's sort of talk about 
the the road that Spider-Man <laughs> took uh, towards getting developed as, at all as a feature film, because that's really so what led saying, towards Turn Off the Dark being greenlit. Before we because Spider-Man turn seems off like the, the dark. easiest thing to greenlight now. We got to figure out what turns on the light. <laughs> yeah, exactly. did uh, Playboy ever interview? <laughs> Uh, the dark to find out what turns it on. <laughs> the dark. So the dark. People are buzzing about you in Spider-Man. that new Broadway production. What are your turn ons? Well, not Spider Man. I'm what they call a switch. <laughs> well, speaking of people that are extremely turned on by Spider Man, uh, we are going to talk about James Cameron's Spider Man uh, script, which I read all of. And spoiler alert. Meant. Scriptment, uh, which I read all of, and spoiler alert is horny. It's, uh, it's covered Spider-Man. with teenage boy cum. <laughs> covered in teenage is, boy cum. We're, we're gonna we're gonna read a little bit of the script uh, a little bit later. Um, we'll, we'll do a, a little group table read of a of a scene um, just to give you an idea of what this Buckwild script had to offer. But um, I have not been sent pages. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not rehearsed. <laughs> So uh, also in development hell, we don't have a table. We have a slable. Continue. <laughs> okay. All right. I don't know if I could say that uh, because <laughs> like with, with a character as profitable as Spider-Man, it's, it's crazy to think about, you know, we, we've had Spider-Man movies every couple years since we were like old enough to think Spider-Man was cool. Well, um, that, that goes into that thing where Sony legally has to put out a Spider-Man movie every two years or else mm-hmm. its kid goes back to its mom's house. Right, right. You know, well, that's well. Let's talk about how that kid uh, got abducted from its mom's house in the first place. Um, basically, the legal rights um, to the James Cameron version of Spider-Man were super complicated. Uh, basically, Marvel initially sold the rights uh, for a Spider-Man film to Canon Films in the eighties. Um, but when Canon had its own, you know, movie in development with Spider-Man, uh, but facing ruin, Canon was bought by Pathé, um, and then producer, uh, Megham Golan, uh, when he left Pathé, uh, or no, no, sorry. When he left Canon and, and started Pathé, he was given the rights to Spider-Man Wait, as part of his he separate left package. Canon? Why yes, did yeah, I mean, can, 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 Wait, no. Why did Canon Films have the rights to Spider Man? That's who bought it from. Because this stuff Marvel. was worthless. Yeah, that's. Yeah, they didn't have any money. So, so it's just Canon. Uh, it's just when, like, when, I mean, they ruined Superman, and it's like they've done nothing but bad movies. They are like their whole <laughs> system was developed. Their thing is, it's just so yeah, weird. Their that thing they, is B movies. Their thing was bad movies, and it was like. Uh, <laughs> How did they get Spider Man at that point? Like when well, Spider-Man Marvel was the didn't really care, and in nineteen in nineteen time when Canon was popular, like there's no. But other, in nineteen in nineteen eighty five, I mean, even the biggest comic book heroes. But like still having weren't. the rights to Spider Man in the nineties is like if some studio says, "Oh yeah, we have the rights to make a speed stick movie. If ever we want to make the deodorant sure movie, we can't." Like there's no market. Right it's now. a useless thing. That's true, but like, like Spider Man, oh, up until the Iron Man movie, again. was the face yeah, of no. Marvel, and like was a, sort of the only thing that held the comic books together at some point, besides like X Men, uh, and it was like really a dead zone. I can like hear even you the Marvel guys, logo was mostly oh. Spider Man. 
Yeah, let's pause. And I know, Kyle, you don't like to edit. Can you guys hear me clear? No, I I couldn't hear anything Richard had said for the longest, and we didn't get any, like, pretty much okay, since I last part. talked, there were no uh, bars going. Now it's going again, it looks like. Yeah, so I don't know where we left off, but you'll have to do a little dive. Yeah, that's fine. Um, let's see here. Oh, it's because I had my thing uh, scrolled down to the chat, so I couldn't notice when I, there was no waves. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. I saw that uh, on me, too. Uh, but so, okay, Canon so Films has it with cameras. So, yeah. so, so they were just, uh, you know, those rights at the time, even the biggest, you know, comic books still weren't uh, a very important franchise um, at that time. Uh, so when, let's see. So then uh, Galan started his own studio, 21st Century Film, and took the Spider-Man rights there. But he then set up the selling of those three rights or of those rights in three separate parts. The theatrical release to Carlico, the home video release to Sony Columbia, and the television rights to Viacom. That's what's made such a mess with the Spider-Man rights. Is like this guy just a little goofer? He was just Or do you look at it like um, uh, the it's the mother boxes? You have to go to three places to to have all the power. I mean, I I guess that's the issue. And so uh, to have the rights uh, to Spider-Man, you have to look at a knife uh, towards a mountain at the sunrise. And it'll tell you where the next piece of the contract is. Has gone on. And as far as I can find, Golan has attempted to sue for producer credit on every Spider-Man film that's ever been made, uh, and has like not like a new lawsuit every it. time. Yeah, no, that's what it looks like. Yeah, the loss is um, built into the budget of every movie. Right. Sure. Yeah. Uh, We're ready for? We'll do two weeks of reshoots, then we'll get sued, and then we can wrap up. Wrap up now. While Carlico sued Sony Columbia and Viacom for the Spider-Man distribution rights, they were subsequently hit with countersuits. So basically all these companies start suing each other because they want to put their thing on TV and they want to put, you know, like they all, they they basically can't get along. And then uh, I can't remember which company Fox entered the fray claiming that because they had an exclusive rights deal with Cameron that they actually owned the rights to the script because Cameron wrote the script and they have like a deal with Cameron in place. Interesting. They own Cameron at the time. Yes. They own everything Cameron did at the time. Oh, cause that, um, that, that was back when you just did holding deals with studios and it was like, yeah, my next five films are made here. Well, and then Cameron tried and failed to convince Fox to buy the Spider-Man rights. Um, and then eventually got so frustrated with all the rights issues that he was like, screw it. I'm going to take this actor that I like that was going to play Spider-Man and we're going to go make this movie about the Titanic. What movie was that? Uh, I believe Terminator 2. Oh, okay. <laughs> Called True Lies. He was going um, to have Robert Patrick play <laughs> Spider-Man. But it's it's insane that... Uh, uh, Basically, by the time that legal nightmare was wrapped up, Marvel, 21st Century Film, and Carlico were all bankrupt. Uh, So the film rights to Spider-Man ended up being awarded back to Marvel, who sold them then to Columbia, like the entire thing, uh, in 1998 for $7 million. How wild that there was a period where studios actively 
wanted Spider-Man off of their books. Yeah. That they were like, this is, I hate looking. It's not that it cost the money that they had it. They were like, get this out of my fucking sight. (laughs) (laughs) Who will buy Spider-Man? I don't want to have to deal with this. And now I could publish a comic on Amazon and someone will have to swoop it up just to not get fired. Yeah. yeah. It's now it's now it's, an obligation to buy and make superhero movies. Yeah, I mean and and it's and it's crazy to think that James Cameron was at a point where he is operating at like full genius, right? Like he's about sure. to make Titanic. He's operating at like the peak of Cameron. And there there are lines in this scriptment that are literally like we follow Peter as he as he dives down through the bridge. It is the most gorgeous shot in cinema <laughs> history. <laughs> and I'm like, but, but fuck, like what, would he have been right? Does he write scripts like Donald Trump? He does, dude. <laughs> yeah. He writes scripts like a like Donald Trump is horny for Spider Man. That's what's great. Oh. He's like, he's like, we're gonna have the biggest tower. Electro will have all the crime. Electro controls every crime. Okay. Interior, all the biggest stuff. school, the best part of the day. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there is there is some fun uh, writing that Cameron did in the scriptment. Um, this is his uh, intro of Peter Parker. Peter's a bright kid. Doesn't have many friends. Is ostracized for his interest in science. Our MTV culture frowns on people who think too much. Curiosity is decidedly unhip. Who cares where the universe came from and how the Greeks hammered Troy? Have you heard the new Pearl Jam album? So this is like the prototype <laughs> for Vice News is scene direction from James Cameron. It's it's like I got a little like, more curious about this Peter kid. So I decided it, to dig deeper. It's like it was written by J. Jonah Jameson, the Spider-Man <laughs> script. <laughs> like these kids these days, they just love Pearl Jam and being Spider-Man. This MTV culture really frowns down on kids who think. Yeah. Okay, so I emailed you guys uh, just now um, some little sides. Oh, that's what that uh, was. Did this go through my agency? Yeah. What's yeah, my I motivation? To your, to your agent. Uh, so we're going to go ahead. We're going to have who wants to read Spider-Man? Who wants to read? Uh, I'll do the scene description. Who wants to do Mary Jane? I'll be Mary Jane. Hell okay, yeah. that feels natural. Is that too enthusiastic? <laughs> that feels natural. No, no, no. no that feels natural. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, do you guys have the sides up? No, uh, yeah. One second. Okay. Give me... It loaded in one email app, but not the other. Sorry. This is like... <laughs> it's, this is it's like... Um, this is chaos. Just wait, hold on. I'm going to clean this up in the end. Okay. This she is stands like Schizopolis. No, so enjoy, script. please, please enjoy it. Please enjoy this, uh, this, this scriptment uh, sample from the genius filmmaker, one of the greatest filmmakers of our time, James Cameron's take on Spider-Man. She stands with her back against a girder, needing to feel something solid. Spider-Man stands before her, a perfectly formed male silhouette with a soothing low voice. Courtship among the spiders is highly ritualized. It varies from species to species. The male spider may circle the female or wave his front legs to signal that he is not prey. Spider-Man moves in hypnotic arc around her. He raises his hands in a dance-like movement, lowers them. 
The female usually signals her willingness by an uncharacteristic passive, uh, passivity. MJ takes a deep breath. Her lips tremble. Her knees are weak. Her eyes, though, are steady, gazing at the silhouette before her. She doesn't move or speak. He moves closer. In certain crab spiders, such as Zysticus, the male will attach strands of silk to the female, tying her limbs. Spider-Man moves his hand gently across her, and she sees the sheerest silk webbing glinting in the moonlight. First one wrist, then the other. Hypnotic movement to the moonlight. Her arms are bound to the wall. Her breathing gets more rapid. Since the female can break free at any time, the bonds have only symbolic significance. The male must be very bold to take such liberties with the predatory female. Yes, he is very bold. But he must also trust her. He moves very close. Close your eyes. He removes his mask and kisses her. Their, their mouths very slowly and very sensuously <laughs> devour each other. Peter and MJ are locked together. He is mesmerizing, gentle, powerful. He pushes up her skirt. They make love high above the world. She doesn't look. Cut to Mary Jane the next day at school. She's humming happily as she gets a, as she lets a tarantula walk over her arm in the science lab. Um. So this answers why James Cameron's been divorced like forty nine times. Entering <laughs> <laughs> the bedroom, like, hey, so my penis blood rushed to it at the sound of you. I spread my knees to show you said penis. And Linda Hamilton could only do two years of going. I enjoy that penis. Before going, this isn't how it happened. <laughs> Hold on. I mean, it's it's insane that somebody who has written good love scenes wrote this love scene. What love scenes has he written that's good? I guess you're right. <laughs> he literally is like, I give up. Let's just connect their hair. Let's just have them put their hair together. And this is where um, Cameron, the one isn't the big contribution from Cameron's script, the 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 biological web, like the web coming out of his wrist. Yeah. yeah. And he builds, he builds like fake web shooters to make it, to make him look like less of a freak in his eyes. Yeah, he wouldn't um, want to look like a weirdo. I will also say the only other thing that happens almost like exactly how Cameron describes it is the spider actually biting Peter. Uh, Cause he's like kind of on like a class trip thing. And yes, he he's like taking pictures and the spider comes down on his hand and just bites him while he's, holding the camera that that was like just also ripped straight from the intro to the amazing spider-man cartoon though hmm. yeah absolutely yeah that, that's a, it's sort of like even like imagery wise like, like sam raimi actually like really made sure it kind of looked like that scene <laughs> and uh that was a weird time in spider-man's life for sure i mean like comic books wise he wasn't doing what uh, like marvel as a whole wasn't doing great and so I could understand why like rights were elsewhere and why they were desperate to make a movie, considering like uh, DC at that point was just like at a high point while Marvel was low. Well, I mean, and that that movie deal and subsequently Spider-Man going on to be such a huge hit is one of those things that made, uh, you know, that 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 did help save Marvel. Uh, Spike, are you are you yeah, good for sure? So good. Sorry, bumpy okay. road this okay. episode. No, cool. 
cool. No, I know. We're good. It's we're almost good. like there's um, some sort of development hell going on. This episode we're getting, will be its own we're episode. Getting, we're getting hit with the residual turn off the dark. This is what's happening is it's bleeding over. This the is what podcast. happens when you turn off the dark, people. The podcast dark is being turned off, folks. Um, so let's actually dive into. Let's actually turn off this dark now. Um, in August yeah, 2002, uh, a few months after the film was released, uh, Tony Adams was approached to produce a musical uh, based on Spider-Man. Now, this was directly because, uh, and, and even the, the entire production team said, it's because the movie was such a runaway smash hit that they were the highest like, grossing high, movie in the world. Yeah, this is a high-flying character. This would be an amazing, <laughs> you know, a, a good um, thing that they thought they could adapt. Uh, and Tony Adams, who was a uh, Broadway producer, was excited because he wanted a brand new project to train his protege, this guy named David uh, Garfinkel. Um, now, David Garfinkel was an entertainment lawyer, like in his 40s, who was like friends with Tony and was like, it's my dream to produce a Broadway show. Oh, to produce a Broadway show, Tony. And so <laughs> Tony had like taken this guy under his wing and was like, okay, I'll help you go from like, you know, entertainment lawyer to uh to to broadway producer um and garfinkel was ready to just sort of take a back seat learn from tony on the project because he truly had zero producing experience at all the only things he knew about broadway was he had a couple of clients that he represented so for people who who are just hearing this because of kyle's wonderful editing we've cut about we've we've run into 40 or 50 technical bumps that will ultimately result in a development hell episode about this episode. I have a new yeah. god now. <laughs> yeah, we have to. So uh, basically, to continue the story, uh, we fast forward to 2005. Um, and this is this is sort of the beginning of uh, the, the seeds that destroy this production. Um, where in an interview, Andrew Lloyd Webber uh, actually was the one who started to bring the creative team together. According to New York Post, Bono began composing Spider-Man after Andrew Lloyd Webber joked, I'd like to thank rock musicians for leaving me alone for 25 years. I've had the theater all to myself. Bono and The Edge decided to give Andrew, quote, a little competition. <laughs> <laughs> now, it's wild that this quote offended Bono when people have been openly talking shit about Bono forever. <laughs> and they are maybe the richest like rock band in the world. Yeah, like, and like, this wasn't it, pointed at them. <laughs> and they are still, I think they, I don't think they've ever not been an acclaimed rock band it's just that listenership has changed over the years and, well, and I, hatred has come out but like they never it's not like andrew lloyd weber was kicking them while while they were down i think the issue really with you too is they haven't found what they were looking for that's true yeah and they didn't know whether or not to do this show with or without you yeah god damn it if i knew any other you no, kyle you gotta do one the bit. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta do i don't know any one yet. I, I, oh God! <laughs> uh, so with Bono and the Edge on board, uh, they came with one singular condition. 
that Julie Taymor be brought on to direct. Um, they apparently had really loved the Lion King and the Lion King grossed over three billion worldwide. So everybody sort of along the whole team was like, yeah, no, Julie Taymor sounds like such a good choice. You know, she was a real innovator in the space with, you know, the, the costumes and props for Lion King. Uh, being really Bono called Julie Taymor and said, all I want is you. God damn it. <laughs> uh, I'm going to edit out this whole part of the podcast, too. Oh, like I don't have a list and it's all coming up through the whole episode. <laughs> I, I, I like coming up could be a YouTube song, too. I don't even know anymore. Um <laughs> So with uh, with everybody stoked, they meet up at the Edge's apartment to sign the contract, which I just Bono is such a personality. I, it, I It's hard for me to to put any personality on the edge other than him just standing there being like, yeah, boss. <laughs> yeah. And it should be pointed out, if I'm correct, this is in like 2005 and and they're signing this with like Tony Adams, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they're all in this meeting making plans for that night that all of them are going to go out for dinner that yeah. night. They are all like every single one of us is going to be somewhere tonight. <laughs> you tooth says this. Tony Adams says this. Well, this, Tony this Adams that. was was definitely not going to be anywhere that night um, because oh. when the edge uh, left the room, uh, when they were ready to sign the contract, he left the room to get a pen. And when he came back, Tony Adams was on the floor unresponsive. Uh, he was rushed to the hospital. That sounds bad. Dead, dead on arrival. Yeah. Best laid um, plans. The, con- the contracts hadn't even been signed. 11 o'clock already. TikTok. Yeah. Already the lead producer had died of a stroke. I hate this bit so much already Kyle we can't hear you laughing so they're ready to sign Uh, the edge needed a pen from the other room Uh, when he came back Tony Adams was on the floor unresponsive shit Uh, he was rushed to the hospital that's an episode of Entourage Yeah, it's it's very like season finale, uh, like hard cut to like executive producer Vince Gilligan, and like, you're like, well, what could what could possibly happen? Um, no, me, it's the, a great uh, thing to happen on the second to last episode of the season. Yeah, yeah. where it says executive producer Doug Ellen. The, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so the contracts hadn't even the, the contracts hadn't even been signed, uh, but he was declared dead on arrival at the hospital. Um, already, the lead producer had died of a stroke. Uh, nobody was even officially signed onto the project yet. Stroke um, of genius. This left the unexperienced David Garfinkel uh, as the lead producer on this uh, Broadway show. Now, the team had this deep desire uh, to finish Tony's desire. last project. Woo! Folks. Folks. Why do you listen to any other podcast, folks? Come on. Subscribe to the pod. You don't have to subscribe. We've been automatically downloaded to everybody's phone. (laughs) (laughs) I think. Do you remember where you were when when that showed up on your phone? 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's we all remember where we were. When oh, every Speak, wave speaking of 9-11, James Cameron's uh, Spider-Man, he hangs out almost exclusively at the top of the World Trade Center. Uh, and the final battle happens at the World Trade Centers. And part of the World Trade Center gets destroyed and is like makes a bridge across the two. So that's that happens there. Yeah. So tell me about this musical. So, uh, Robert Pattinson would have survived that movie then. Yes. The twist at the end of his Spider-Man was that it was 9-11. So uh, ba- basically, the, the, the group had a deep desire to finish the project uh, in Tony's honor um, and uh, sort of his last wish for the project was for Garfinkel to produce it. And so the team wanted to try to honor that. Uh, now, Garfinkel honestly seemed pretty reasonable in this situation he knew he didn't have the knowledge to produce the show properly so what he thought was the best possible idea was to hand all creative control to julie Taymor. sometimes you can't make it on your own you know (laughs) they keep they keep gut punching me I'm only doing it when you are you are feeding it to me. I, I, dude, I am. Yeah, there's no moment of surrender. (laughs) Yeah, see, I'm not doing that. Oh my god, (laughs) shoving it in. But if you say desire, I'm gonna sing it. Oh my god. Oh, my God. So uh, the New York Times said uh, others might have abandoned the project, but Spider-Man's team decided to go on with Mr. Adams partner David Finkel as lead producer. An able entertainment lawyer, Mr. Garfinkel had little producing experience and he ceded artistic decisions to Miss Tamor, a perfectionist whose aesthetic included never repeating herself. Mr. Garfinkel did not take the tact... (laughs) <laughs> did not take the tack that Disney had while working with Miss uh, Taynor on their hit musical, The Lion King. Uh, her ju- her genius best flourishes under supervision. Um, <clears throat> so the initial budget uh, mostly awarded because of the movies uh, box office and the merchandise sales was a record setting 52 million. Uh, but as we know, that will that number will continue to balloon. <laughs> It did a reverse now, battlefield Earth. Yeah, it rever it it, you know, it Earthlefield batted. Um, <laughs> now the script was very ambitious uh, and included so many aerial maneuvers and technical hurdles to overcome. Uh, Tamor had a spare no expense mindset with the production, uh, and her ideas. Uh, that were pricey proved to be a drop in the bucket with Lion King. You know, she pushed for a lot of innovation on a lot of different things. And in the end, the musical made so much money that nobody ended up caring about that stuff. So that was sort of the mindset that she brought to this production where she was like, look, once this thing's a hit, it won't matter that we spent 20 more million. It's sort of the like with Lucas on the Star Wars prequels where they don't, it's like, man, this guy seems to have nothing but bad ideas, but that's what everyone said last time, and it turned out to be Star Wars, so let's not say no to him, because I well, yeah, it's apparently also, make Star Wars when no one believes in him. It's also a post uh, across the universe, where it's like, that was a hit, too, because that's where like her and Bono kind of met, and it's like, everyone's like, yeah, I guess she knows what to do with other property. Yeah, Bono yeah. is <clears throat> wild in across, across the, universe. the universe. Yeah, as a cult leader. <laughs> 
No, I mean, it's it's actually like kind of spot on casting. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were working in awkwardly the title Wild like, as a what song if a title. Guy <laughs> thought he was a really big deal. <laughs> um, that's just the description of Bono, just in general. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what if a guy thought he was a big deal? <laughs> what if a guy thought he was a big deal and wore tinted glasses because of it? Uh, so by 2009, the show was already millions of dollars over budget. So they suspended the production conti- to continue fundraising. This meant they couldn't continue casting. Uh, they couldn't work on their prep or launch ticket sales or marketing. And they were only six months away from their initial Guys, opening date. Can you hear me? Yeah. I'm so fucking sorry. I'm like, have you always been able to hear me? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Now, when you look at my recording buddy, do I have a bunch of... Am I pretty silent for a long stretch? Uh, uh, no. It looks like a, but it, it's when no, like, I was talking. No. Yeah, no, you're good. Everything yeah, it's whenever someone else great. is talking. I just feel like I... All right, I'm going to back out. Sorry, I you know this, I'm making this a nightmare for you, Kyle, but like, I just am now paranoid. Yeah, it's all good. I feel like at this point, leave it all in. You started the server. Okay, I guess maybe when I go away from the screen, it doesn't. Okay, just sorry. Continue. I'm sorry. Start at the beginning yeah, no, of this I, passage. I think it's all there, but I will. I will do. I'll read this again. Okay. Um, by 2009, the show was already millions over budget. Uh, So they suspended the production to continue fundraising. This meant they couldn't continue casting. They couldn't work on their prep, launch ticket sales or marketing. And they were only six months away from their initial opening date. So Tamor's script uh, called for fight scenes to mostly only play out uh, in the air over the audience. Now, this rigging system um, posed the majority of the problems in the pre-production uh so much of the key choreography was on this flying rigging system and it was not a rigging system that has ever really been used for theater it's actually the rigging system that the wwe and xfl created to run cable cameras at sporting events now like the nfl uses it stuff like that um it's that same rigging system which is really good at going from a kickoff goal to you know from kickoff to an end goal uh to an end zone jesus christ i'm such a cuck to an end zone <laughs> but but and that's is, where they get those homers yeah uh it's really good at hitting like you know point a to point b right um but they needed yeah. it to hit like 37 points so they're like with over, a guy on it right with a guy on it so the payloads the things aren't created for it the motors um, so basically they're pushing like the software that's running the systems to the limit by running like multiple versions of it at the same time. It's a nightmare. Um, and even worse than that, the Foxwoods theater, um, unlike, you know, high tech theaters in Vegas or, you know, other high tech theaters, even in New York city, um, it used to be the old Apollo and the old lyric, which is like, those are from like the 1900s and the 20s. So they're actually protected historical landmarks. So anytime they wanted to install any piece of rigging equipment, they had to have, they had to apply for a permit, have somebody from the city come out and inspect the piece of molding they want to remove, have somebody schedule a photographer from the city to come out and take pictures of it. Uh, 
then they could remove it. They had to take it to an approved storage facility. They had to then do their do their modifications and then do all of that again to prove that they put it all back. And they had to do that for every single piece of rigging they wanted, anything they wanted to drill or physically alter about the Foxwood Theater, this entire process. And these are weeks long between all of those steps, between getting approved for a, a storage facility, between getting a person to come out and look at it. And so all of this stuff is just bloating the time and bloating the budget because all of these are also thousands of dollar permits, like $10,000. Uh, yeah around that time i was in a i was going to like theater school and one of my theater teachers just every day would spend an hour ranting about this show and the stuff he had heard going on behind the scenes and it was just like that was a big thing he talked about was he was like they're stupid they're for not coming to vegas and just gutting out a theater in vegas and doing anything they want to do it could have so, been at like the fucking mandalay bay and made just buckets of money like every so so and that's what that's what a lot of a lot of people you know professionals in the industry were sort of saying is you know why aren't they doing this as an arena show like they do with marvel live now why aren't they doing a touring company why aren't they doing you know a a stay in vegas was the big thing um and it all comes back to bono and the edge being pissed at andrew lloyd webber they want to stick it to Andrew Lloyd Webber in his yard. It's got to be Broadway, or why the fuck are we doing this? <laughs> I'm sorry, but like, and I figured sorry, that out because I Weber, knew the guy who. <laughs> when I figured that like, out in the Andrew research, Lloyd I was like, "Rich is going to be stoked <laughs> that I found out the reason." God, what? No, because Andrew Lloyd Webber made a <laughs> musical. Where trains as transformers are singing, <laughs> and Bono is like looking at like a like a poster of Starlight Express. Like I fucking, I'm gonna own this guy. It's and a real Bono, like, obnoxious contest. And Bono stays mad about this for like the nine years of development hell this this project stays God. in. <laughs> Imagine having so much white people money, you can have a nine, you can have like a two hundred million dollar vanity project just fail because you want to prove someone wrong. <laughs> so, so basically, Garfinkel was people you know, died, <laughs> despite despite not being good at uh, producing a musical. He was good at circumventing, or you know. Uh, not circumventing, but, uh, you know, just being immersed in, in, you know, the different permits and all that sort of legal jargon. He sort of understood that and could parse through that and was sort of the, the one that was leading the charge with that. Um, but all of these things started to, uh, pile up and they basically were running out of money because they kept having to hire the workers and then the city would come in and say oh this isn't up to code but the workers were already paid for three weeks so then you have to delay those workers you still have to pay them then you have to hire them again so they were repaying the same people to fix the same things four or five times and so everybody in the production crew was like this is not this can't happen anymore. And Garfinkel was like trying to get more money, trying to get more money. He gets one of his legal clients, like one of his big Hollywood producer legal clients to come in and like angel investor, save it. And that guy backs out the night before they were like meeting up the next morning. The guy calls him at like midnight and is like, I don't want to do it. I have a bad feeling in my gut, which like the guy was right. But like, imagine you're like, you get that call and you're just like, we're so fucked. 
Um, yeah. Uh, but then a savior appears. A little mouse-shaped savior. A mouse-shaped savior? Stuart Little? <laughs> Stuart Little rides up in his little car with a bucket of money. No, uh, Disney, <laughs> uh, Marvel is bought by Disney uh, for $4.24 billion. So um, that, that fast-forwards from, uh, from uh, 2009 to 2012. Because that's when the buyout sort of like takes place, right? Yeah. Well, well, that's when it's finalized. But it's yeah. sort of the the word on the street is out for about a year that they're buying Marvel, and so this is what Garfinkel is able to go to a lot of the investors that were already invested in the project and say, "Hey, Marvel's only getting bigger. You know, like look at all this evidence. All these Marvel movies are coming out now. Like we're you know we're firing on all cylinders. Let's 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 get some more money and get this going." Um. Now, Garfinkel took money out of his own company, uh, as well as begging current investors to up their uh, investments, as well as convincing a Texas oil family, uh, which ultimately gave him enough funds to finish the construction for the rigging. So now the production can move forward from there. We still is, haven't gotten an actor in the fucking rigging yet. Is uh, is the oil family the same one that like produces Transformers in like two to three years after that? I. Dude, I tried so hard to find anything. They're called the Shermans. That's all I know about them. They're Texas. Yep. They're a rich Texas family named the Shermans. And I tried so – I Googled turn off the dark Sherman, Spider-Man, Sherman family. I could not find information on these people other than the documentaries I watched and the interviews I watched um, where they're mentioned. So that's all I could – that's all the only information I have about the mysterious Sherman family of Spider-Man lore. Huh. Oh, boy. I'm now, always interested uh, in these like Texas families that like produce yeah, secret rich, you know, step in and they're secret rich and they, there's nothing about them online and they come yeah. in and they have the, this influence on media. Yeah. You know like, I mean? like, weird like the dude from, for avatar that like for like Nicola Peltz's dad who like forced her to be in the movie. Cause he was producing it. Like it, yeah. it's like, how do these people like just do that? So, so, you know, Garfinkel really came through here. Um, he got the money together and it was a scramble and it was the 11th hour, but he he got the money together. But this didn't endear him to the rest of the producers. It made him look like a novice who was running around with his head cut off and, oh, I've got the money. I don't have the money. I have more money. We got money coming in. I got people to up their Like it actually made him kind of look bad to everybody. Um, like the fire Festival guy. Yeah, it was just... This guy just keeps giving us updates, so he must be aware of stuff. Yeah. Um, So, while Garfinkel was looking for more funds, Bono was apparently furious. Uh, He He approached... He approached... Yeah, yeah, he reread the quote, and he was like, we're not doing it! Uh, Why would you text this to me? He approached um, Michael Cole, who was another, uh, another... you know, producer, uh, Broadway producer to take over the project. Uh, and in 2009, Garfinkel was, uh, was ousted from the project. Um, Jeremiah Harris, who was the chairman of live nation at the time and was already an investor. One of the investors that upped their investment, um, also stepped in as a producer. Uh, now, they hid all of this drama, all of these producers changing hands and everything. They hid all of this drama by announcing their cast that same week. 
It was a very strategic move by the producers that were still there to sort of announce the cast, drop all that info, and nobody will care that a producer left and two more producers were added. But it's again, and the cast is not. It's it never had stars, right? Or well, actually, yeah, Neil Patrick Harris, so, baby. Well, no, no. Originally, <laughs> no, no. Actually, you, you originally, uh, Mary he, Jane he was. Mary Jane was originally played by Evan Rachel Wood, who is Dolores on Westworld. Yeah, you mean uh, Marilyn she, Manson's she, ex-wife? She, uh, she left uh, before the production ever actually opened. Um, and then who was the other? TV Carpio Alan, was in it too. Alan it's Cummings. Just... Alan yeah, Cummings it's... was supposed to be the Green Goblin, and he left. And he was quoted in an interview later. Somebody asked him about it. He was like, oh, man, Dod- what a- talk about dodging a bullet, dude. Like, he was like, uh, Alan Cummings impression, right? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, really. On, well, on tell game. me about your one-man Hamlet. Oh, man, I just read the fucking script. I was like, I could do all of these parts. I fucking love being Hamlet, dude. I could. I was like, I wanted to play him, and I wanted to play him, and I wanted I'm to play her. Fucking nightcrawler, bro! I can teleport, be anybody. I, I want. didn't like wearing makeup. I well, wanted to uh, so, didn't like makeup. Man, uh, wild. So the new producing team uh, raises another thirty million, but the production uh, runs out of money again within just a few more weeks because Garfinkel was the main person dealing with the entire permitting process and everything was left on bad terms. So he didn't tell anybody how to do that. The people he was in touch with the everything. So they had to try and put back together all the pieces on all these different parts of the permit process. Um, <laughs> which really what a Garfinkel not... the move, man. What a fucking <laughs> like Garfinkel law. Thing. We hate Mondays, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so hemorrhaging money again, they cancel uh, their next opening date. Uh, this obviously brings more bad press uh, with everything getting pushed back again. And this causes uh, Evan Rachel Woods and Alan Cummings to leave the production. Um, however, in 2010, uh, they are able to get their first preview of the show off the ground. So... This preview uh, lives in infamy as the biggest really preview well, right? shit show. Yeah, works in, out in, great. Yeah, uh, they come in under time. Uh, they uh, everybody crushed it. People were like, "I love the changes to the story." No, um, this it was word is, perfect, bro. Is Tony Adams un- came back to life? <laughs> yeah, he did a big number. Said, Where's in my the pen? Is an edge getting a pen? <laughs> <laughs> Where's my pen? Where's Edge at with my pen? <laughs> uh, so it started 24 minutes after the advertised showtime. Uh, sets were missing entire pieces due to funding issues. Some of the pieces were still being fabricated. Uh, during a scene where Arachne floats over the crowd, the wire system malfunctioned and she was left awkwardly Ooh. floating uh, Arachne. We'll get to her later. Uh, she was uh, left left floating above the crowd awkwardly for eight full minutes. Uh, after that, um, still in, still in like Act 1. Longer, on the eight minutes, I feel like that is a longer amount of time than it feels when you hear it. No, it's a. Oh yeah, like when you're hanging there, it's an eternity. Yeah. Yes, that's a couple musical numbers. Um, 
uh, in in Act One, still Spider Man's harness goes rogue and starts swinging the actor across the stage left and right. Um, the pet the stage manager calls for a halt, uh, and the stagehands are on each side of the stage trying to grab Spider Man as he swings side to side like a pendulum, and the entire crowd starts doing like the oh! <laughs> <laughs> he gets close. Uh, the actress really playing. Awesome. I mean, that's an engaged audience. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the actress playing Arachne was standing backstage uh, and a rope that, that we'll get there and a rope that should have been uh, being held by one of the PAs that was trying to grab uh, Spider-Man uh, was loose and a giant speaker system that was unsecured uh, and left unattended uh, fell onto the actress's head, uh, striking her and giving her a, quote, severe concussion. Uh, For unknown reasons, the intermission, which was scheduled for 10 minutes, lasted 46. Uh, In the last 10 minutes of the show, a final stop occurred (laughs) during which a mass exodus of people left the theater. Uh, They were leaving in droves and they were yelling things at the actors like, I feel like a guinea pig. This is like a dress rehearsal, man. And people are like booing and being like, yeah, what she said. Um, Like literally the crowd is like ready to riot. Um, Yeah. Sounds like lovely people. The preview ran an hour over time. Um, Now, the only possible way this could be even worse. Well, since it was such a delayed production, they didn't have time to schedule like a press screening and invite critics. So a bunch of the critics not wanting to be left out of the loop uh, bought their own tickets to the first preview. So it was about 75, 80% industry and uh, critics in the crowd. And they were yelling that. Yeah, these are, yeah, that was the New York Times lady was like, I feel like a guinea pig, man. (laughs) New paragraph. (laughs) Alan Cummings was like, hey, this shit whack. Uh, I'm glad I left. About a month later and about 15 previews later uh, for the show, um, the first major injury took place. Uh, The stunt double for Spider-Man fell from a suspended platform over 45 feet down into the orchestra pit. Uh, He broke four ribs, fractured his elbow and fractured his skull. Uh, he was ready to be back on the production in two weeks, though. This guy rules. I watched an interview That's with hustle. him. I That's watched an interview hustle. with him, and he was like, yeah, I mean, I just like went to jump, and the harness just like wasn't there. So, you know, <laughs> I was like, this guy rips. Uh, uh, a few months later, though, uh, the production was halted yet again, citing a, quote, tremendous amount of creative commotion behind the scenes. <laughs> What Which is, is an mean? alternate. That's an alternate name for our podcast. Uh, <laughs> creative differences is a good name for this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they halted for two months to let the creative team, quote, rework the final sequence, quote, rework dialogue, remove and add scenes and remove and alter some songs, which <laughs> I don't know how much more you can say. We're rewriting the whole that's thing. Not re- that's not reworking. That's like we're, we got to start over. Uh, they, uh, and the only thing that's not and, and rethinking the whole Spider-Man thing. Right, right. So that's now the thing they didn't do. So now they start running previews again uh, and the show is still not open. Um, 
the final delay came later that year. And at this point, over 200,000 people have seen the show during preview performances. Oh, no. But preview tickets, they can't sell at the at the high ticket point. Now, is it um, occasionally going well? No. Are there, no. Are there and, no reviews you can find of someone who saw a preview and said, like, no, it was great. I, I didn't know everyone was swinging and it was perfect. Yeah, there's so no we'll guy that's get, like, we'll, I like it. We'll get to it once Tamor starts to get pushed out of the project. But one of the reasons she was unwilling to change anything for so long was she was like, I just want to be able to watch it one time perfectly through before we start changing stuff. So this whole thing between her and YouTube is just being made through personal vendettas to the craft of theater. <laughs> well, yeah, and, this, and we'll actually ego. get... Like, there is this. there is an insane ego trip on on Tamor that I'll get to later because it is fucking what she compares herself to God. It's wild. Um, so uh, let's see. Um, where were we? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so they decided that they needed to rework the book for the musical because it was too sloppy, even after a staggering 140 previews. Ugh. So they've tried it about 140 times, and it still hasn't even gone correctly. That means it won't. <laughs> right? So at this point in the story, this is a good moment to kind of step back. And we all know that Turn Off the Dark failed, but it's important to talk kind of about why it failed. So this is some interesting info that I didn't. I didn't know not being a Broadway person, only about 25% of Broadway productions recoup the money that they actually spend and then can, can turn a profit. What are we doing? <laughs> yeah, it's insane. And so well, at a like, budget, it's like when I found out that, um, kamikaze pilots, like kamikaze planes, <laughs> uh, only 17%, uh, <laughs> hit their target. <laughs> oh no. Whereas like eighty three percent of kamikaze planes just like sank, just hit the water. We were down a guy and a whole plane that we made. Seventeen percent. So so at a budget of seventy nine million, uh, to put it into perspective, the next highest price tag musical of all time is Shrek at twenty nine million. <laughs> I didn't know that was a musical. <laughs> it no, looks yeah, horrifying um, too. Every the, season uh, they do make a they make a one out of IP. There's a Rocky musical. There's a uh, there's an American Psycho musical. There's a, mm-hmm. and there's obviously there's like Adam's Family. SpongeBob just recently got off Broadway. Then there's Beetlejuice. American Psycho seems like it would be a great musical. SpongeBob musical. one is actually really good. Yeah, SpongeBob's <laughs> great. They do. These yeah, that came through town the other last year. Andrew and Weber did School of Rock. Yeah, I mean it's it's cool. So and and to also put it in perspective, Hamilton costs twelve point five. Linklater. What is it called? Uh, Ham. It's a little 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 one called Hamilton. It's about a no, ham, I believe. About, is that about a pig? Yeah, I think it's about a pig. Pig um, wants to be a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> he wants to study law. Uh, it's estimated. Um, that the show would have had to sell out the 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 show would have had to sell out uh its full theater uh every night for seven years to recoup the money that it had put in that's a lot of years (laughs) that's a couple more than and 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 because they were running at these preview ticket prices that's that's With it being cheaper? fully open. Yeah, they're they're cheaper because it's a preview. Um, 
because they're doing that, it's running at a deficit and it's costing a million dollars a week to run the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the main issue with making the show more simple is that the musical they felt had to compete in some ways with the movie. And you got to see Spider-Man flying over you and flying around. And that's what you're coming to the to the theater. At for. this point, what Spider-Man movies have come out? Spider-Man. I mean, at this point, it's 2009. So you have three Spider-Man movies that have come out. But the real the real <laughs> canon has yet to begin. <laughs> yeah, you have, a, have yet to see what Spider-Man can become. You have a fourth one in development. Fail to see how amazing he could be. <laughs> He has yet yep. to become amazing, or amazing too. Well, that's true. We uh, and because he's, we have he's a way uh, far from home. At this point in the Raimi verse, they are working on the fourth movie with John Malkovich being Vulture. Which I I'm gonna grab Spider Man. I can't do a good John Malkovich. I tried. I don't. <laughs> I really watch me flap my wings. I am the Vulture. <laughs> I I'm fly. high. I fly higher. <laughs> I'm green. <laughs> That's my thing. Well, so so so, so my name is that, Adrian. To- so so to that uh, that that extent, the producing team was so obsessed with making this a technologically advanced musical. Like Tamor was so into technologically pushing the envelope in a very James Cameron way, uh, where she put it sort of above everything else. Um, and the producing team really lost sight of what makes a person go to a theater to watch a Broadway show or what makes a person want to watch a Spider-Man movie, like a good story and, and good characters. And they sort of just ignored all of that. Uh, they were like, I feel like audiences want fear, but yeah. like, uh, and, did it answer, it just... did it answer the question? Was it like star Wars, but better? <laughs> it was. Um, and the script had been, uh, had been effectively tamored. Um, as she rewrote the entire origin of Peter Parker uh, and was very much so obsessed with this theme of Greek mythology. So her take on Spider-Man was that like superheroes are like modern day Greek gods and demigods. I guess is kind of new at that time. It's now kind of been, which is Neil Gaiman's American gods. It's like Neil Gaiman and, um, I mean, even Zack Snyder takes like a bro, mm-hmm. let like attempt at that with Watchmen and and the Batman stuff. Yeah, and and I think and the Incredibles even I guess. Yeah, and and well, so she but she takes it a step further. Watchmen had to come out um, right? where she she creates Arachne, uh, which is a literal Greek oh. goddess of spiders. Who? Yeah, that's who she. Now you know who she is. Uh, <laughs> who who basically um, picks. Peter Parker way back in like Greek God time uh, and makes his suit and gives, makes the spider go bite him, which really robs the core of like Peter Parker stepping up to become Spider-Man away from him. Uh, And she really doesn't understand like the core of, of the uncle Ben story as she really blunders that as well. I guess this is sort of the take that you, you see a lot and you still see it a lot, but not in superhero movies where the create the the is adapter a word, but the person adapting the source material is embarrassed of the source material um, and I needs guess. to 
give it some new assignment to make it feel important and like it's not coming from a comic book. And you see this now from things like Sonic. You don't see it really in in yeah. I mean, you see it in like the Joker, where again, right. it's just someone who is like, I can't reckon with the idea that I'm spending all this time on a children's thing. I have to make this grown up for myself. And at that point, um, you're losing the audience that might sh- that might want to show up. Is that well, why like so- Shazam worked? Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, because it's of, like yeah. let's like th- let's let this be lame. I like like this is a movie kind of for kids. Yeah, so. let's make an Amblin movie, you know, because he is a superhero who is a child, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, well, sort of to that extent, um, and I was going to get to this later, but I'll, I'll sort of get to it now. Um, get just to, to sort of show Tamor's ego. Uh, she was quoted saying that she sort of looks at Arachne as sort of a self-insert character uh, because she saw herself as molding and creating Spider-Man from nothing. uh, So this is like adaptation. I mean, sort of. She she thinks of herself as like this literal god in the story making Spider-Man do these things. And she gets really attached to the Arachne character, I think, because of that. So you're saying that and Bono were in charge of this and it didn't really go smooth? <laughs> it's yeah. funny gods so, made this. So, it's funny so, because then, there's a Spider-Man goddess woman already in the comic books. Yeah. Her name's Julie <laughs> Tamor. <laughs> and it's weird. Her name was Julie Tamor yeah, in the comics. That's, no, that's why they uh, thought of her. No. Um, so uh, two, two other quick things about how she didn't understand. So along with this Greek mythology theme that she has going, she adds uh, an, a literal Greek chorus to the musical, but she calls it a geek chorus. And they're literally just like four kind of nerdy people who are, and it turns the musical into now it's about a group of kids trying to write a story for their class project. And so they're writing this story about the Spider-Man and, Again, this is this is this is people adapting this stuff, not understanding why it's cool. Now, right, I'm not exactly. saying that Spider-Man is the ne- is is the greatest story ever told. I, I I don't think it is, but I'm saying that this is what happens when you hire these people. Like, why why was anybody expecting Julie Taymor and Bono and the Edge to crack what is interesting <laughs> about comic book culture and Spider-Man? Well, exactly. And that's sort of the point that it that it gets that this whole project like gets led to is now we're standing here and there's nobody really that the originally the project started with other than Bono and the edge. And they only care about pissing off Andrew Lloyd Webber. You know what I mean? Like like the the original guy who liked Spider-Man, he's not even a part of the fucking he's dead. This is an 80 million (laughs) dollar subtweet. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so that they are spending three years. The other thing that that Tamor really shows that some she guy fractured his totally... skull because they were like, "Fuck you, Andrew Lloyd Webber," <laughs> but he was ready to go. He I'll was throw, ready to get right back. I'll in. throw a million stuntmen at you, Webber. <laughs> so he uh, he he. The other thing that that Tamor clearly doesn't understand is the Uncle Ben connection and sort of how that inspires Spider-Man. Now, Spider-Man is given his powers by Arachne. So when Uncle Ben dies in the musical, he's had almost no conversation with Peter up until this point. 
um, Flash Thompson is at Peter's house. A carjacker is stealing his car, and uh, Uncle Ben is hit by a car off screen. Uh, and Peter rushes up, and he dies. Peter goes into his room to cry, and then Arachne comes and gives him his suit. And then he's like, he's like stoked and he's like zipping around the city, flying around. He's like, I'm the Spider-Man. And it's like, there's no emotion. That is his catchphrase. He he instantly doesn't care. Um, Yeah. Well, you got to move on. Yeah, we got to get, we got to get to it, baby. You're just your uncle. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because when this when the story was written for this, at least it was coming off of, uh, you know, the 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 original Sam Raimi Spider-Man, which I feel like the Uncle Ben story was so clear and strong in that. Uh, it, it's like yeah. it's just literal. This is what the relationship is. This is what it will always be. This is what he means to him. And it's like the blueprint for everything else because it also comes from what Uncle Ben means. Like Uncle Ben is blatantly what Uncle Ben is. And to like miss right. that is to be glaringly dumb. And 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 they didn't have you know? Uncle Ben right. in the the MCU, but they sort of have Tony Stark filling that void and being that like deep emotional loss for Spider-Man. You know, which what I is mean? like the key and the biggest problem with that character, that version of the character. Sure, sure. That it's it's kind of cheating. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Um, so. They bring in uh, Roberto Aguero Sacasa. I'm, I'm butchering his name, you, I'm sure. You've been making up names this whole episode. <laughs> that paper uh, well, this is, is blank, this sir. Is, this is most notably the guy who adapted Riverdale. Um, and a little bit oh, about him. Show. Yeah, oh, he's... He's uh, he was um, he, he's been a playwright who's always been super into comics uh, and he tried to stage like way before Riverdale. He tried to stage like an adult version of Archie in New York where Archie like comes out to his friends and he got like a cease and desist from uh, from Archie Comics. And now he's the CCO of Archie Comics. Like now, he, like, you know, like Broadway <laughs> really. See, that's how you do it right. Industry like rewards psychosis it's it's pretty crazy um so they bring him in to do some rewrites to the story uh and he makes some huge changes he makes arachne a much smaller character uh he also cuts the geek choir um but he's not perfect uh as he adds a bunch of his own weird stuff um like now act one ends with spider-man murdering the green goblin with a by dropping a piano on his neck um and quote he did this quote because i wanted to drop a piano on george bush while i was writing the play this is okay well that's deal with that at home (laughs) with that away from the laptop um but yeah, so, but this, did I mean, that? Go ahead. Did that Green Goblin have like a George Bush like accent, like impression at that point? <laughs> no, no. Yes, he, he, just, he, he he said in the interview he was watching the news while he was writing that scene, and now. he was like, "God, I want to hit that guy with a piano." And then it was like, now, "What does Spider Man do next?" I hate the, the Spider Man. He kicked <laughs> Spider Man and then said, "Mission accomplished." And he said, "Now watch this drive." Um, this is another thing where like. Stop hiring people with perspectives to do your emergency rewrite. There's a reason why like Joss Whedon and Stephen Gagan and like David Goyer get hired to do these things because they aren't like David S. Boyer. (laughs) They get hired to do these things because they don't 
they're not bringing in some big artistic baggage. Why would you, you don't hire like, you know what? Oh, this scene in the Avengers is not uh, conversational enough. Let's bring in um, Jim Jarmusch. It's like, he's just <laughs> gonna, like, you know, like, what if this was boring? He's going to come in with his own weird perspective, which is like, that does not work when you bring in a new psycho to help. Exactly. Like exactly. Bono and Julie Taymor couldn't crack this. Let's get the guy who made an illegal Archie adaptation. <laughs> oh, a fucking like theater playwriting student to come in and go, I just read the textbook on how this stuff works. Let me help you. Yeah. And, and uh, so, and, and he even changes like the act to, um, uh, he ended up like like they they kept cutting the geek choir and then adding the geek choir back and cutting it and adding it back because Tamor was so into this idea of the geek choir. Um, so yeah. then now Act Two to starts honest, with the teacher. He starts with the t- Act Two now starts with the teacher um, reviewing the story that they wrote and telling the geek choir that Spider Man's villain should be unbeatable. So then the Sinister Six are introduced, but Tamor cut several notables, including Doc Ock and Vulture, and inserted her own character, Swiss Miss, uh, who who looks like a big knife. She's a big hot she chocolate. Like a bun- she looks like a bunch of knives. Yeah, and she's is named like- after a hot chocolate brand. It's very weird. Well, because this think- is her own creation. She's a she's I, a lady yes. Swiss Army knife. She is the Swiss Miss. So this was so. If we're looking at this from the development health standpoint, this was doomed from the the jump because there was <laughs> nobody who wanted to get it made. They all just wanted to be the loudest. Yes, they all exactly. just wanted to create their own Swiss Miss. Yes, and you have nobody a project like, with all of these Swiss Misses sitting here. Open up, like you didn't have United Artists going like you need to deliver Apocalypse now this fucking year. There right. wasn't Fox going, we've had Alien vs. Predator. This is like the studio is the problem. The, the which only is thing not common for development hell, where the, the creatives in charge are the ones who are insane. The only and then their employees are you too. Which is, <laughs> like, people. like the only thing that tied this like production down to anything was deadlines of when things needed to be open because they pushed things back. But at some point, it was like you have this ancient theater rented for a certain amount of time, and you. Have well, to that's the thing out. is uh, most most big productions sort of stage stuff and figure stuff out in smaller venues, and then they go rent the big theater for you know a couple months for previews, and then they yeah. open. They rented the theater for four years before they <laughs> opened. <laughs> Yeah, it's which like cost a lot of years. dozens of millions of dollars in just renting the fucking theater and having it sit dark for four years while they figured out permits. You know, <laughs> like it's such a production hell. Now, I'm I'm going to go to bat for Tamor a little bit here. I think she's really incredible at like the visual spectacle of big theater. Right. Like there's so much in like the Lion sure. King. That's incredible. There's even stuff. I watched a lot of videos of, of Turn Off the Dark. There's a lot of those original numbers that are incredible where the people are like swinging on these fabrics and the way they did this. But the, the Lion the webbing King is kind of done when she shows up. Like the, I, I don't know much about that musical, but I have to imagine that they're kind of like this story is well, already written. Story. Exactly. So that's where she signs is really making something visually pop. And she's not a storyteller. You yeah, know what it's I mean? Like so when a she very needs... visual director takes a crack yeah, it's, at writing. It, exactly. It's Boz Lerman. You know, it's like uh, it's the same sort sure. of deal. This dude should be a cinematographer. 
Yeah. And she would like, be the she would I be the Bob best. Berman's you know, she's show, a great visual thing. director. Um and she has so many you know uh, but she's also incredibly hard to work with. Like she has a reputation for being yeah. extremely prickly and hard to work with because she believes every idea she has is her best idea. Right? She's one of those creators where she she's like never found a hill she wouldn't die on. Could you, you imagine and, playing like like the police commissioner in this play <laughs> and like <laughs> you, have, you have no bearing on anything. You're not getting hurt at previews. Your friends are, but you're like watching all these fights and meetings and there's like this the well, awful. And you probably have happening. no idea what's going on half the time and you're just like, no, you're like somebody's pissed. This and- is preview number 140. Well, and and you're going back to your job at Fuddruckers and like just wondering when your you shit take off. This, there were a lot of people who this was not their only job. Yeah. yeah and that is very heartbreaking. Uh, like during the day, they're like folding towels at like Bed Bath and Beyond. And at night, they're like, yeah, I got to go fucking work on Spider Man Turn Off the Dark. This is giving me a headache. She's so Tamor is sort of one of these creators that is like. If you check her and question her and make her really defend her ideas, she'll go to bat for her best ones and you can kind of get her best work. And that's what Disney did with her for The Lion King. And they let her win mm. some battles and she lost some battles. And it was more of a uh, a collaborative situation because they had the balls and the tact to go in and say, no, we're doing it this way. And nobody on this team was willing to go to Tamor and say that. Because nobody felt like they had the experience, at least early on in that production team, to come at Tamor and say, I know how to do this better. Because she can always say, well, I made the most profitable musical of all time. So please tell me again, Mr. Entertainment Lawyer, how you know more about it than me. Well, you know, like <laughs> it sort of gave them the power to uh, say no to Tamor on the second go around when they made the uh, like updated Lion King, you know, that John Favreau made. Is because John Favreau came in and was able to say, "I think I can do this better than her, anyways." And her pitch, from what I heard, for because uh, they did actually like, out of respect, give her uh, like a pass on the the like CGI Lion King. Wild. And her big demand, she said, the only way it's going to work visually is you have to have a real live person in this movie to tie it down and make it make sense. And they were like, Julie, that's the Jungle Book. <laughs> yeah <laughs> but i think at the, at the same time she probably is like i'm Vin, thinking about the lion king more than any living person right now i actually think that like if you look at the she lion king right. movie that happened she might have been right she no, might have been like no, she, you might actually make the most boring fucking movie ever made if you don't put a person in there and she wanted to actually like continue the technology of the cgi puppetry uh, of like the puppetry she did on the stage show and sort of like continue that and have yeah, that's one of those actors. bad ideas. That's you one know, of those other it, bad ideas. That was the Lion King John Favreau made. That was another one of the, well, making yeah, another sure. movie is one of those bad ideas. Well, what she did was like she's like, all right, coming in hot, good, reasonable idea. You have to agree with batshit crazy. Yeah, <laughs> she's like, yeah. well, and that's and that's sort of what it seemed like from working with Tamor. Uh, we'll get to it later. Or there's a quote um, uh, where. Basically, they were asked, uh, like the other, uh, I think it was Cole was asked, like, um, how do you think you could have made things like at the end when Tamar left, like, 
how, how could have, how could you have made it a, a better working relationship with Tamor? And he paused for a second and gone, uh, not hire her, <laughs> which is brutal. Uh, and I hope he did say, uh, that would make it yeah. even now. Now, uh, I do think that Bono and the edge were equally to blame, uh, because none of the songs from the soundtrack are memorable or catchy. Oh, that shit um, is hot caca. I've listened like when that. Oh. It's really bad, and they didn't have they they refused to take any kind of um, input from other musical like musicians because they they wanted to stick it to before. Andrew Lloyd Webber in their and own this was voice. A thing we did right. We didn't take. We didn't come and try and emulate him. We want to be us, right? Which is like a take. Yeah, and I understand that there is a point of like it's 2005 and you're U2. You know how to make music, but then there has to also be this thing of like maybe you don't know how to make this kind of music, right? Well, and they and they thing happens within that same time frame of American Idiot, but it's like that's music that was kind of already written to be a rock opera kind of Mm -hmm. thing. And Green Day knew to be kind of hands off with that. The, in a musical, the musical has to tell the story and has to intricately like lead you everywhere. And the actual you know, like parts that are in between are filler for these big movements and moments that tell you the story and give you all the emotion and heart. And the, from listening to the soundtrack, it has none of that. They have rock songs that would have been good in the background of a shitty spider-man movie right and and sort of and that's what they they sort of quote that the music was weak um because they quoted that garfinkel was a weak creative lead and didn't give like a clear creative vision for the overall project uh and that the script was so weak from tamor that when they went to go write the music they were just not as inspired as they felt like they like should have gotten to be so they were basically like, well, yeah, how were we supposed to make? This is also my Bono. How are we supposed to make good music if the script's bad? Oh, how are we supposed of... to make good music if all the music is bad? <laughs> that's, that's Bono. I think you might be muted, Silspec. Well, you um, missed me doing a sick Bono impression. <laughs> oh, well, I'm sure we did. Not as good uh, as mine, baby. So, and then also, um, Bono and Edge needed to be consulted on any creative changes made to the music, the, the script, the choreography. They wanted to be oh, see, um, contacted. Music. I get like, <laughs> don't fuck with YouTube music, but when they're like, you can't change the choreography. <laughs> So they want to make they want to be known and kept in the loop on all these changes, but Spider Man is not a top priority for them. So Tamor produced all these emails later, uh, where she is like begging them to change lyrics, improve songs, or even attend rehearsals to see how things aren't working. But they just like are like ghosting her. Um, However, Tamor couldn't uh, get through rehearsals or previews without running into huge technical difficulties and didn't want to make any changes to her story without being able to see it all the way through without anything messing up. Uh, Bono and The Edge were getting furious about the negative reviews and Tamor's unwillingness to change uh, or budge. She was rejecting uh, 
most of the new writer's ideas and Bono and the edge decided that she couldn't objectively judge the piece anymore as it had become too personal for her to win arguments backstage rather than to correct mistakes in the script or make a good original piece of art. Is what they said. Uh, so this kicked off what Tamor refers to in court documents as plan X, <laughs> which is, pretty cool (laughs) badass kind of plan it's it's a cool fucking name it's a very theater kid name to name something yeah it's like if a kindergartner wrote an action movie i'm gonna i'm gonna go on record now i'm gonna fucking say don't ever give theater kids money ever again (laughs) don't don't give them power like if a theater kid hasn't grown out of being a theater kid by 22 fuck them the fact that oh Anne Hathaway God. probably has a couple mansions is, should be fucking terrifying. <laughs> it's, it's insane. Like, oh, man. So um, on CNBC, uh, you know, basically it's sort of what I what I said with that. Uh, let's not hire, you know, let's not hire Taymor quote. Um, but they said uh, Cole went on to say uh, we let her have so much freedom and have her way. And everyone told us that she works best when she makes stuff in crisis. And we're sitting there feeling the crisis, but we didn't know what to do. And we just decided to let Picasso paint. So they're sort of being told by people like, hey, she works best when you really put a fire under her ass. And she's like, hey, we're on fire. And she's like, yeah, guys, it's fine. It's the, like, it's the exactly like, the, no. the Lucas thing. Yeah, exactly. Where he's highlighting like Jar Jar, every you know, actually everything CGI, and they're like, uh, he he works best when everyone thinks he's fucking stupid. Yeah. So after they removed Tamor, um, they made uh, a new finale, um, and the new script focused more on the characters and less on acrobatic stunts, uh, featuring uh, especially in the finale, which was the most complex sequence. They said that each actor had over 170 different programmed like sequence cues from that rigging system. So mm. essentially, if you think if you have four or five, you know, you have the sinister six, you have Spider-Man, you have the other characters. So you have like over a thousand of these different cues that have to go off correctly just for the finale to go right. God damn. Um, and so Tamor believes that the producers had started uh, to meet without her and operating on what she called a twin track, letting her pursue the project, but also trying to stage the show without her, uh, which to an extent seems true, which um, but it's like, I mean, it would have been you're a professional. You, you know, this is going rocky. Like, you know, it's not going good, Tamor. Like, you're a professional. You have to know that they're trying to figure out how to fix this. Here's but again, the- her, her sort of creative M.O. is shit's falling around falling apart all around me here's the thing that julie taymore doesn't understand about being in a creative like team is that like everyone has a group chat without you and you have a group chat without with at least one person in the group too you know it's like everyone is behind everyone realizing possibly be the problem yeah right and that's that's never crossed her mind um and you have to remember that this like this is now 2012 and tamor joined the team in 2003 so this is nine years that she's been a part of this production uh and she's officially let go now during this new time uh the new script gets worked on uh but tamor actually takes the the production to court 
Um, she claimed that this was a character assassination uh, to pin the failings of the production solely on her. Um, and they settled out of court for an undisclosed amount of money. But it's people have said it's around 200,000. Um, this only I added just to the negative said, don't perception give of the theater show. kids money. so finally after nine years six delays five injuries the death of a producer multiple new producers added one lawsuit and 182 preview performances spider-man turn off the dark finally premieres in june of 2011 thank you for listening everything went well Uh, (laughs) there's a little there's a touch bit more but we're almost done uh, oh, we are no. almost done, actually. I want to go nice so, for these people. Um, now, people generally agreed that saw the movie once it ac- or saw the 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 production once it actually opened. Um, that the new script was much more clear, much more simple. Uh, he was even able to inject a little bit of um, like Spider-Man fandom and like a little bit of like inside jokes of like. You know, like, should we make a musical about him? Like, well, that would never work. Think of all the problems you'd have. And like, they, they had There's a couple of jokes like in there, like poking fun at the piece. What itself. if a musical knew it was a musical, guys? <laughs> what? Hey, guys. Uh, Let's get Brian so on that, if this um, if this uh, play didn't happen and all and it didn't become as famous as it is for what happened, there would be a Deadpool play at this point, right? It would have been a Reynolds oh, yeah. rap. Yeah. Now, That's good. Uh, now, just because people agreed that it was much better doesn't mean that the reviews were good. Uh, it was this still agrees on his poopy. <laughs> yeah, basically. I mean, it was still panned by critics. Um, the performers themselves actually got mostly good reviews, like the actual cast got good reviews, um, but people still thought the story was bad. Um, Yet something incredible did happen. Despite the negative reviews and the bad publicity, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark was able to consistently sell out. They actually set the record for the highest grossing week of a Broadway show at $2.9 million. Do you think that's that's sort of just like they kind of want to see... It's yeah, like going literally. To a, it, 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 became, it was. I want to see the dead bird, you know? It was... Yeah. yeah. It, it became the room for, for theater kids. And you also like maybe you'll catch someone. Fall, right. Maybe someone and, will fall. And maybe in your lap. yeah, it has that NASCAR effect of like, is someone going to die? Yeah. You know. Um, exactly. You know, and for about two months, the ticket sales were really good. But then everyone the who kind of wanted to see it. <laughs> yeah. That's way less than what they needed. Yeah. Uh, so after about two months, the ticket sales started to wane, uh, and the producers were not able to renew their five-year injury insurance policy. So they announced the production would stop within the next three months. Uh, this, looking and, at- and, and to clarify that, that just means uh, it, it's become too expensive to insure this show. Yes. Yeah. They physically, they can't afford to, they wouldn't be able to make money for what the insurance, like essentially the insurance premium was going to be. Because this is basically um, a murder machine. Right, right. They they're like, they're like people. Hear me out. Yeah, Andrew is Spider Man, and we murder them. And, and it seems like Weber they tried drop the chandelier on a crowd. Why don't we just drop people? Yeah. <laughs> that, 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 that's what That'll I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, and we and, don't even tell the people. 
And, they, yeah. and it seems like they tried to basically be like, but you guys got it. We, we reworked the finale. And the company is just like, yeah, a dude fractured his skull, though. Like, <laughs> like no. Um, so That's not medication. So looking at the attendance, uh, it seemed like they were a legit hit. But after three years, the biggest show in Broadway history that cost nearly $80 million went down in history as the biggest money-losing Broadway production of all time and the worst-reviewed Broadway production of all time. And that's the story of how we turned off the dark. Chad. Now, I have a pitch for a really good musical, right? Mm-hmm. We, take an, we take someone from history and we rap like we're on Sesame Street. <laughs> I think my pig lawyer idea would be much better. <laughs> Ain't no what law if I to say was a pig can go to court. <laughs> what kind of lawyer do you think he'd be? He'd be a tax attorney <laughs> to help you with your audit. Uh, well, this was a lot of fun to research. This whole story was crazy. Um, there's a really great documentary by uh, Wait in the Wings on YouTube. Uh, if you care to watch that, there's some really cool footage in there uh, and some sort of uh, interview snippets and stuff uh, that's sort of laid out that I, I couldn't fit into here. And there's sort of an oral history book about this too, right? I, I believe so. Like I mean, people want to go dig in, into more of yeah, this. Go dig into this more is, of this. Every, it's an interesting um, thing too where – go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, every Broadway show has a show book, you know, like and like kind of uh, mm-hmm. like chronicles sure. like the production. So like this one probably <laughs> this one's nine hundred pages. Yeah, yeah, this one's bigger <laughs> than Battlefield Earth. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was like truly marred by development hell issues at every stage, like from from pretty much being greenlit as this is going to be a musical. It like from that point on, it, literally they always hit problems nothing so now really. so now we have to ask the question right like was it worth it no because no. you don't get the thi- everything these have all i think been worth it so far because uh ultimately the thing is released in full Be- and that's because like like i was saying there was a sane person in charge mm-hmm. this wasn't worth it because nobody got what they wanted <laughs> And inc- and the thing never actually happened. Actually, correction, man. One person got what they wanted, and it was Andrew Lloyd Webber. Yes. That's <laughs> <the real laughs> yeah. The only winner is Andrew Lloyd Webber shoving his flaccid dick in Bono's face and twirling it. Bono and the Edge are like frantically adapting like an Iron Fist musical. <laughs> Well, actually, one thing one thing I wanted to ask you guys was if that James Cameron Spider-Man got made, do you think that that uh, the Tom Cruise Iron Man would have gotten made? Because that feels like the natural next thing that was like floating around at that time and would have been like well, that. Next Iron flavor. Man was it, so unknown until until the movie kind of because well, he was, he was Iron Man was cheap enough to make. Earth. That's why. Right. It was but at like that a, time. Antonio Banderas. Everybody's cheap enough to make. Yeah, yeah, Antonio Banderas was the other guy that was sort of up for Iron Man with like Tom Cruise being developed. It was like that's incredible. Yeah, that was like a post Zorro thing. They were like, yeah, you know, he could really do it. He's like, I am Tony Stark. (laughs) 
Antonio Stark. Antonio that was his Stark. whole read, and then he dropped yes. the script and walked out of the room. <laughs> yes, we have it. You know how to call to hire me. No, I uh, um, that I honestly recommend anybody reading that that scriptment because it is fucking buck wild. If you want to just I, have an interesting night, I so, think if Cameron, go ahead. Oh no, you go ahead. I've been doing that all night. It's like, you know, you. I think about this a lot about the fact that X Men was the first one out. Was the entire sets in motion everything that comes after it that the first two major superhero movies to come out are X-Men and Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. And then the the sort of landscape is lost in the woods for like six years where we don't know what to do until Dark Knight and Iron Man come out as the two templates that we are all still kind of mixing and matching. Still kind of using, yeah. So, so now, you, know, you know all the those thing movies have the is, same producer? It's uh, A.V. Arad. Yeah, who was just like, who bought the toys, basically. Yeah. Right? He I thought, owns, isn't he sort of the, he's the guy that owns the rights to the toys, thus he owns the rights to everything? Kind of, but he is still like, he, he was like on set of every single one of these movies, like uh, making yeah. decisions on like Ghost Rider and Spy- and the Spideys, and like it's still kind of like in there for like Venom and shit. You gotta, sure. you gotta get Jamie Foxx back. It's not so, gonna work if you don't the, get Jamie back. So, <laughs> Can we please talk Dane? Because I think we can get Dane again. Was actually given a bunch of notes from Kevin Feige on what to do with Amazing Spider-Man 2 to fix it. And he was like, I ain't doing any of that. Which was, and and this is why he's a modern master of our time. (laughs) Yeah, truly the Julie Tabor of film. Uh... There is absolutely very little wrong (laughs) with Amazing Spider-Man 2. For starters, also very little right. There's just very for, little. Uh, no, for the for audience. Starters. We're recording on opposite day. It's too short. I think we can all agree <laughs> we could use a couple more hours. Yeah. Number two, and, the guy's not blue enough. Number three, that guy's not green enough. <laughs> so, do you guys have any Come more here. any more thoughts, sort of, on this whole uh, this whole production? Oh. I, I obviously think it was not worth it to make this. Um, as it would have taken just the simple math. Also, I kind of crunched the numbers on what everybody was saying on like the sets being this much, the theater being this much. And I still don't get how they blew 80 million bucks. I really don't. Like I was kind of doing the rough numbers and I'm like, this feels like they laundered money or something. Bro, give like, me $80 million <laughs> right now. Give me $80 really million. Dollars. I'll fucking committing. burn it. What was that? <laughs> um, to that point of like, you wonder how much of that money is lawsuits and permitting. Mm-hmm. Um, but 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 to my what I was trying to say about James Cameron is had his Spider-Man been first out the door before Brian Singer and Sam Raimi, you know, Brian Singer is kind of anonymous at that point, And mm-hmm. Sam Raimi is it's a bit of a left handed pitch because he's not an action guy. Um, so if Cameron makes the first good superhero movie before those two, I think that superhero movies might have then become defined by being the works of major directors instead of adaptations of major work. Yeah. And like by that metric, like there would have been the fast DCEU. Forward, 10 years later, I don't think theater is fetishizing getting these comic books off the ground. I think that it it's, it's a much more cinematic 
2020 right now in terms of like, you know, right now, these things are properties that are that have to be everywhere. They have to be on in TV, in video games, in in YouTube videos, in Disney Plus. I think that if Cameron makes the first good superhero movie, then superhero movies are something auteurs do. And now it's become this rare thing where really only um, really only Chris Nolan has made a superhero movie that feels well, like Well, and that's of- and that's the thing is you feel like you always hear these insane like you know, they're always like, we really want, you know, Robert Rodriguez to do Ghost Rider or whatever, like weird Marvel, well, like, no, you they don't. Want, we want, we want Tarantino to do Captain Marvel 2, like, and you're like what are you talking doing, about? Like, Blackhawk, like, no, you don't, you just need that, na- even like how Thor 3 is obviously filtered through Taika Waititi, it's not, it's, it's, this guy gives us some cred, we let him tell a couple jokes, but he had to make one of our movies. I think that if you have a filmmaker who is running his own studio and decides that Spider-Man is cool before anybody else does, then you have a much more artistically centered landscape of, of comic book movies. Whereas Brian Singer and Sam Raimi seemed to have just gotten the gigs. If James Cameron's Spider-Man had worked, we would have gotten the Martin Scorsese Joker. Sure. You know, Which, like, because it was because uh, Martin Scorsese was rumored to be doing Joker before it was the Todd Phillips Joker, and it's like. But I think, and that's just because he wants to make movies, right? I don't know yeah. if in two, if you really think about if nothing happens the way it has happened in a Cameron Spider-Man world. Who knows what is even interesting to people? Well, John Favreau doesn't make Iron Man when that happens, you know. And that's the other one that kind of somehow feels like a kind of a Favreau movie. Like it's a bit of a hangout movie. It for... does kind of feel like, cause it was so heavily improvised by them and they were kind of yeah. hanging out while they were making it. And it's a and bunch so... of like, the cast is only just fun people. It's not mega movie stars. It's <laughs> yeah, just like exactly. guys kind of wanted to hang out with for a while. It's a good hang. I mean, what's no, a good a hang. Total hang. You guys ever think about how the most famous person at that time in that movie was Terrence Howard. Yeah. He's... And, and he knew it and that's why he doesn't have a job yeah. anymore. Yeah. He was so... fresh off an Oscar. <laughs> So sort of the, the other the other crazy thing, and we sort of talked about it a little bit with talking about Brian Singer and the X-Men, like the other crazy rights uh, Spider-Man thing that happened is, of course, the other notable famous person that wanted to, to play Spider-Man um, and actually uh, want, was attempting to buy Marvel outright uh, yeah. to secure the rights, but could oh, not because the rights were still owned by someone else. Michael Jackson. Uh, Michael Jackson. I think, I, yeah. From Spidey he, he to Jar Jar, the Michael Jackson story. That would have worked out great. He said it would have been would have worked out great. They sat great. down. He sat down at a lunch with uh with Stan Lee, who for some reason was like, I watched the interview and he's like, I think he would have made a pretty good Peter Parker. It would have been like, excelsior. What are, you, what are you What are you talking about, dude? No, it's because but, Sta- but no, everyone uh, doesn't want to talk about how Stan Lee is a dude that was just like. So you're gonna give me a check for this? Okay. Yeah, he not, not too conscious. Yeah, he was kind of like an old school writer in the in the way of like they were kind of crooks, like <laughs> kind of like. Yeah. Uh, so like basically, he sits down with with uh, Stanley for lunch, and he's like, "I want to play Spider Man. 
it's my dream to play spider-man i think i could play it really beautifully how much do you want for the rights i'll write you a check right now and stan lee's like oh i don't have the rights like marvel yeah. own the rights and they have them out to some other companies and he's like oh so i have to buy marvel <laughs> and stanley was like uh i guess what and so he sad. tried to buy marvel but then he found out that he still wouldn't be able to make a spider-man movie because the rights were in that crazy vortex that we talked yeah. about earlier the, um, the, and uh, then situation he comes back into the picture when brian singer is trying to make his x-men movie because and he actually auditioned there's apparently an audition tape out there he auditioned for professor xavier oh we got you know, cerebro. <laughs> what well, a every millennia evolution <laughs> takes a leap. <laughs> the story of Michael Jackson <laughs> is that of like how much damage can be inflicted on a person who inflicts so much damage. <laughs> like he yeah, is truly, he truly is the modern Job, but also <laughs> Like, what if Job jobed people? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he is everything bad about whatever happened ever for all time. <laughs> Apparently, he had these like, t- like these like ten and twelve foot tall Spider-Man statues that he had like custom made at Neverland Ranch, like all over the place. He was like obsessed with Spider-Man. It was like his favorite. Um, and yeah, well, he thought choice. he'd be a really good Professor X because he thought like. I don't know. I just thought he had some wisdom. They eventually, of course, went with Patrick have, Stewart, which is a different vibe. I, I have, expe- no, I have experience uh, living in a house with children, so I think I can do this role well. I get to tell the children what to do. All right, we should move on. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's pretty much it uh, on on this on this whole story on on the Spider-Man development hell and, and Spider-Man turn off the dark development hell. It's crazy that like Spider-Man as a franchise is just like had so many bumps in the road, and that like finally like the the world feels like it's sort of smoothed out, and it was because they went back to the idea that Spider-Man should always kind of be treated like a cartoon. And right, like, that's when he works his best, right? Yeah, is when he's cartoony because he's supposed to be. And it's like uh, like Homecoming and everything after that has like figured it out. But before that, it was just because people couldn't figure out uh, – how they wanted to divorce Spider-Man from that concept of a cartoon. And that's There was a movie was. before Homecoming that felt very cartoony and good. Yeah, yeah it really felt like, um, like an SNL cartoon. It really did. Like – Amazing Spider-Man I wage 2 is, this war until I drop my sword. It is as world. good as the ambiguously gay duo. All right, <laughs> just quite good. Uh, it's interesting that Spider-Man is also maybe the most famous, um, maybe behind Batman, the most like famous and bankable superhero and costume and everything on screen. And never, you know, Spider-Man three made a lot of money. Um, Amazing Spider-Man two made a lot of money. When Spider-Man is bad in movies, um, he's still printing money. Not that those are both examples of Spider-Man being bad in movies. When Spider-Man doesn't work critically or creatively, he still makes so much money. Whereas this musical does not exist. Yeah, he's sort of he's sort of the pizza of media, right? Like even when Spider-Man's like, bad, it's still that's pretty good. How bad. And 
And this, this is this is so what? bad. Yeah, because they were like, what if we just had a pizza box and we filled it with pudding? Because Andrew Lloyd right. Webber said we don't know shit about pudding. People think that like <laughs> Spider-Man 2, Raimi's Spider-Man 2 is like some many people think that's still the best comic book movie ever made. Uh that the Spider-Man like game is the best one of the best video games ever made. It, that the Spider-Man score for all three have been some of the best Spider-Man scores that his comic book still sells out, that he's the best part of the Avengers movies. And this musical never was even not bad. Right. It was exactly. it never broached good. Here's my thing though. Could it work again if it was given to someone else to just fucking redo now? Yes. That's the thing is a Spider-Man musical I feel like is easy and doable. It, it's no, really it ex- isn't. What did we just? Did you? You should listen to this episode. It's not <laughs> a Spider-Man musical because you have to swing him I around think, and then he'll die. I think you can give the dear Evan Hansen guys Spider-Man and they can figure it out. You know, it's it's not about well, those the guys don't work. know how the camera no, no, for no, no. football but, works. But, but, but here's they but here's what I'm saying: football is, camera is, stuff is, is is I think they it don't could have work to. if you had. If you had the right team to figure out how to overcome those hurdles in creative and interesting ways, right? Like Cirque du Soleil works out perfectly and they, they figure out how to works do all great. kinds of insane works out. Great. They figure out how to do all kinds of insane stuff. The SpongeBob musical is, is a really great adaptation and they did a big choice, which was not having like suits or anything. They just have like kind of a nerdy guy in a suit and tie yeah. playing SpongeBob and a big burly guy playing, you know, Mr. Krabs and a stoner looking guy playing Patrick. And like, I feel like it's just making the right choices when adapting something like this to make it successful. I, I mean, I just think there's there's always money in the Spider-Man banana stand. Um, I don't think they should attempt it again because I don't yeah. think I don't think Broadway or the world of musicals needs Spider-Man. Like it's just not yeah. a property anyone's ever like. Oh man, when I look at the, the theater, I just imagine a Spider-Man swinging through. Like I don't know who who asked for this, but you know, it's sort of that kind of thing. Damn. I think it could work, but it doesn't need to. That's uh, basically. Yeah, that's that's really the core is like I I do think with somebody with the right creative team that could pull off the technical aspects and cared about and understood the project. But that's sort of like any project could work with that. You know, to be honest, though, it's like (laughs) the one shining thing in there is like if you did make like a fun, cartoony Spider-Man musical, the geek chorus is a good idea. See, I'm out. I'm back no, out on it the is. Yeah. I think you no, just said a really crazy sentence. No, well, like you don't uh, like thematically, it works to help tie the audience to the story, and you make them geeks because everyone's geeks. You know, I guess we. I, I understand what you mean, but my interpretation of how it seems Julie Taymor brought up the geek course was like a point of condescension. Like the only way she could understand Spider-Man was if her play admitted it was lame. No, and, yeah, literally, and that's because you have you have the other geeks like ripping on it, like so he wears spandex, and they're like, yeah, but it's and, cool spandex. Yeah, you I see, we changed that. It. You know, it's but like we've changed. we've crested the that that hill now, and and now geeks are no longer running the world. Now they're like they're alt right sort of soldiers. <laughs> like I think that now to represent geeks as like push in your glasses and say something about Spider Man number three fifty two. 
that actually doesn't exist anymore in terms of the sort of Uber fan that we have now. The Uber well, fan uses hashtags and like and and just berates people who disagree. I think it's like a negative thing. The idea of a if you made the geek chorus in 2020. Yeah, the geek chorus in 2005 is a different vibe. Because what the a geek, geek chorus was, in 2020 yeah. is like is problematic and kind of racist. <laughs> and is like mad that anybody who's not a white man is playing anybody. Which again, if that's the take you want to bring to it, that's I mean, like, pretty fun. My thing is I've don't look at a lot of geeks online in 2020 and think what you think though. Okay, can well, I, no, I say something? I think that I think that about two years ago. I've never said this out loud. I think that about two years ago, I went down this rabbit hole for about three days, where I was follow, where I was just looking at, not following, all these like, um, like fan love, like you know, fanboy accounts, with sort of like bad faith arguments for everything, and then it tricked my Instagram algorithm, and now that's all I see. So I think I'm just in the dark fandom web of people hating everything. Yeah, I think, and I don't know how my algorithm to show me nice things. Because a lot of well, my no, guys I, are nice I, on my side of the internet, and uh, well, uh, no, no, but I, but I get what you mean. Where it's like, po- if you guys went on Facebook and posted right now your takes on uh, the last I'm Jedi. I'm a reasonable person. You know what I mean? Talking right. about everyone agrees well, with me. If, 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 if <laughs> now, um, that a black person is playing a, a a character in the books who's white, you know what the top 400 comments are. Yeah, but like I think you're speaking to that as it's like still the majority. When I don't feel like that is the majority of people still. I don't think it's the majority, but I think it's the loudest. I right. One could argue a vocal minority. That's true. It is a vocal minority it, because it, the it, majority it, I, that I, I, actually I, doesn't give a shit what they say is just not paying attention in those. Yeah, they don't give a shit to the point of commenting. Comment, right. You know, it's we like, all we all none, none of the three of us are commenting on the screen rant post about Jamie Foxx being brought back. But you can't uh, create a geek chorus out of these. Out of, you can find out of a bunch of silent people. Wait, did I miss someone saying something about Jamie Foxx playing Electro? No, I, I was <laughs> I was in those damn comments telling people if you don't like it, don't watch the movie. But like, <laughs> he should be blue. I don't know why you get him and you don't make him blue. My thing is, I think they're not going to make him blue. I think they're going to make him full CGI and he's going to be like Electro Electro. Well, that's stupid. He should be blue with a little chip in his head. Dude, the chip and in he's the head that shows the level of power. Let's go catch a spider. Electra is also the villain in uh in the in the James Cameron one. So there you go. It's weird that there are Marvel heroes Electro and Electra, and they are they could not be more different. Yeah, they're not. Yeah, they don't hang that out is, at again, all. Just same like Stan Lee stumbling into an idea. Uh, all right, all fellas, right. let's uh let's wrap this up. Yeah, Richard, um, what are we doing next week? So uh, to keep uh, the theme I see here is just like wacky characters, a group of people not being able to work out together. I want to do the Dungeons and Dragons movie. Ooh, interesting. Uh, me and Kyle are uh, big Dungeons and Dragons nerds. We uh, play Dungeons and Dragons uh, and Geek Chorus over here. All right. The Geek Chorus yeah, coming out strong. It. I mean, like, Toxic it is, online. It's a. Uh, it, it's definitely something that everyone has seen on a free HBO weekend, <laughs> but it's. I've never seen it before. I've actually it's, never even. It has seen it, it has a crazy back. it has a crazy story and uh, some other stuff that I'll add on on the next episode. But I'm really excited to do that one. Cool. Fuck yeah! Well, Spike guys, rolling it. Rolling it. This will be a an ordeal. 
I I I will do this because I love you, but I I can't handle shit like this. <laughs> this swords and horses and dragons and realms, I cannot deal. So, dude, this, this movie is like do in Battlefield Earth. <laughs> Well, it'll be a good time. Uh, you guys can follow excited. me on Instagram at Kyle Anderson Comedy. Uh, and check out my other podcasts I do with uh, Josh Wolf Control Chaos and my other podcasts I do uh, with Mitch Holloman and Gracie Todd called Extremely Internet. Uh, I'm Richard Humphrey. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Rich Neasy, on Instagram at Rich Neasy. Uh, uh, you can follow this podcast now at Dev Hell Podcasts. Oh, yeah on the instas uh so yeah do all that and you can follow me at hg spike on instagram and you can catch me posting horrible things on that instagram dev hell podcast on instagram bye demons slowing so much pack look like drift race movie in here with the gang every time we link a movie money tall stack influence put you back into it uh, money tall love ferrari right now